is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. This is the Andy Wakefield Podcast, Episode 9. My name is Laurie Gregory. Andy, great to be back here with you. Yes. Here we go. What are we? Number nine? Is Number nine. Number nine. Yes. Right. How we grow. We're going to be double digits next time. Okay. So I'm excited today to talk about our topic because I think what it will do is provide much needed background and detail of where all of this started for you, this whole controversy, this whole turmoil where your life started to pivot. And you've told me that that fateful day was May 19th, 1995. That's right. And just to reiterate what was said in the last one is that last podcast is that the purpose of this Mm -hmm. is to provide a platform for a video lecture series and a series of podcasts which go into exquisite detail on the events of 1995 through to now, now, which really um, talk about the origins of the gastrointestinal disease in children with autism, how it came to be identified, and what the consequences for that have been. And let's just put this into perspective a little bit for folks. Any medical conference that you go to now for doctors and continuing education in 2019 and 2020, it's all about the brain-gut biome, the connection between the gut biome and the brain. You started all of that in your work in 1995. I don't want people to forget that because it's becoming very commonplace down the vernacular of Americans to talk about probiotics, to recognize the importance of gut health. And you were really the tip of the spear of that in your work. So I just want to acknowledge that, that we owe a lot of what we're seeing today in the advancement and the understanding of the gut-brain connection to your work. And I'm not trying to be a kissy face suck up here. I really want to acknowledge that because that is such an important component of the immune response and the immune system. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I Louis Pasteur said that chance favors the prepared mind. And all you need is to have a prepared mind. The credit for recognizing the gut brain link or alerting us to it came from parents. It was the parental story that really provided the clue to this intimate and very important relationship between gut health and neurological and psychological functioning. And as you say, it's now become huge. It's widely recognized. And it, in large part, did start from the Lancet paper, but the origins of the Lancet paper were in the insights of mothers, and in particular, the mother of what was called child number two, who was the second child to be seen at the Royal Free. So let's go back to... Let's go back. So you're at the Royal Free at this time. I'm in my office you're in the in Department office. of Pathology. Life is going I, on. Do, do, do. Yeah, and I your had, phone um, rings, right? I had a, an unusual appointment. I had a joint appointment between the Department of Medicine and the Department of Pathology, mm-hmm. even though I trained as a surgeon. So how does that happen? Well, it, it happens because you make discoveries and observations along the way that kind of change the course of your uh, your career hmm. sometimes for the better sometimes not <laughs> and this was a call on the 19th of may 1995 from the mother of child number two 
And she, at the time, she wasn't the mother of child number two, but it became in the course. Child of number two was a designation she, given later. At, later at the at time, the it was a stranger director. calling a potential patient. You didn't know. You, your no. phone rings, and it's this mother. That's right. And she's a, she's she was very smart. She was a businesswoman. She was um, very articulate. And she described a series of events in her son that really led to the discovery of the syndrome that was ultimately described in The Lancet and has been confirmed worldwide beyond that point. And, and what she described is a normally developing child, her son, encountering an MMR vaccine at 15 months, I believe it was, and then regressing rapidly into autism. He was never quite right from that point forward. And she knew it, and, and she, she was it. telling you clearly that's yeah. what she saw. And she was not clearly anti-vaccine. She'd taken her child to, to be vaccinated. vaccinated. Sure. She was merely reporting the consequences of that vaccine. But at the time, and I've said this many, many times, I knew nothing about autism at all. I was a gastroenterologist. I was interested in gastrointestinal disease. I Did you think she had the wrong number? I did. I did. I said, how can I possibly help you? I don't know anything about autism. We were, it was, it's, as I understand it, so rare. Right. And we were never taught about it at medical school. So how can I possibly help? And she said, my child has terrible gastrointestinal problems, which the doctors have put down to his autism. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Right. And it was fascinating, you know, on reflection, everything that we now hold to be true or increasingly validated in this condition stems from that conversation. She went on to describe how she was sure that what was going on in his gastrointestinal tract, the pain he was suffering, he couldn't articulate that pain because he'd lost any ability to speak. So it was manifest in self-injury or aggression or rolling himself up in a ball or pressing his tummy on something to take the pain away. But she knew as a mother that what he was suffering was pain, mm -hmm. even though the interpretation by doctors and nurses and health visitors had been something, oh, that's just autism. No, it wasn't. No. This is a child who's You know as a mother when the your child's knew. in pain. And so yeah. you, the, the skill of medicine is, you know, be a genius, you have to listen. You have to listen and you have to say the true clue to this child's problem is in what this mother is telling me right now. Mm -hmm. And it was, and she was absolutely right. But she went on to characterize the gut-brain link. She went on to say that when his tummy's bad, his brain's bad, I'm sure there's a link between these two. And when I put him on a diet that excludes gluten and casein, it gets a lot better. Mm -hmm. He starts sleeping, he starts smiling again he starts laughing sometimes he uses words that he stopped using all those years ago and it was fascinating and of course this had been universally denied by doctors the child's general practitioner was somewhat different he did listen and did ultimately make a referral to the royal free because he knew this woman and he trusted respected what she was saying absolutely he didn't know whether it was true or not but he mm -hmm. He at least valued her opinion to the extent that he was prepared to make a referral. And so she said to me, look, there is an epidemic of this problem. I am not alone. There are many, many parents that I'm in contact with who have children in exactly the same situation. And so I went away and thought about it and I started to read about it. 
And this was my duty as a physician, a scientist. My job was to get educated. I didn't know about this, but I could But you get knew educated. where to go look. And- I went and looked, and I it, it started to dawn on me that gastrointestinal symptoms had been described before in children with developmental disorders like autism, and that by treating the underlying gastrointestinal problem, there the might be some amelioration better. of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. You didn't cure the, autisms, but, the autism, but you could make a difference. So there was something going on here, but moreover, the severity of this child's gastrointestinal problems could not be written off as just autism. That was not in the textbook, all right? It's no good saying, oh, that's just autism. No, it wasn't. And there is a golden rule in medicine, and the golden rule is that the problem is real, is physical, is diagnosable until proven otherwise. You do not write someone off as being mentally deranged or merely having a psychological problem just because you do not understand. The answer. Just because it's not in the textbooks. Mm -hmm. There are many things that aren't in the textbooks, many things we have to learn. But you have to do every single thing you can in your power as a physician to investigate that, to rule out other causes of that child's symptoms before you come to the final conclusion that actually I can find absolutely nothing and therefore it may be that this is psychological. And we were so far short of that. We hadn't begun to investigate these children. Sure. Yeah, I'll read them. Let me read you a statement about these children. This is from... John Walker Smith. Now, John Walker Smith, one of the world's leading pediatric gastroenterologists, retired now, unimpeachable career until Brian Deere came into his life. Mm. And he wrote to the head of vaccination, Dr. David Salisbury, who in fact had been a junior doctor working for him some years before at Great Ormond Street Hospital. He wrote to David Salisbury, who had become the head of the medical secretariat at the Department of Health in charge of vaccination. And he wrote to him about these children. He said, on the issue of autism, I am completely astounded by the clinical features of these children with autism and bowel inflammation. Very often, the gastrointestinal symptoms have been ignored by a succession of doctors, and the findings on ileocolonoscopy appear to be quite distinctive. There seems to me to be a whole new syndrome, which is in urgent need of clarification. So there's the, the view of the world's expert in paediatric gastroenterology to the Department of Health. Okay, But David Salisbury took a different view. Anyway, my job was to get to the bottom of this. And a number of parents following on from that conversation contacted me with an identical story or a very similar story. Because of the mother of child two. Because of the mother of child two. She Some went contacted back and shared with her community who the conversations the two of you had been having. That's and essentially they what started yeah. to follow up also. Yeah. And so, none of this had anything to do with lawyers or litigation. This is just suing the a pharmaceutical company. Listening to a patient. This is a clinical scenario, a clinical interaction where a bereaved mother is describing very clearly what happened to her child. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, she was completely and utterly right. So what did you do next? So I then, having read something about this and started to make some notes on the subject, the gut-brain link, the possibility that the virus in the vaccine was related to this in some way, I did two things. I went away and did an extensive research study on 
measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, all measles containing vaccines, the pre-licensing safety studies, the post-marketing follow-up, was there anything in those studies that gave a clue mm -hmm. to what might be happening here? Was something missed? Was something was overlooked? Smart. Was the work not done? Right. Was it incomplete or maybe they missed yeah. something? Was there something was in the nature of the biology of measles virus in a vaccine or otherwise that might do this? And two, was to bring together a team of people to investigate it. People who were qualified in their field. And that would include Professor Walker-Smith, world's leading pediatric gastroenterologist, and his team of outstanding academic gastroenterologists. Mm -hmm. Pathologists who would look down the microscope and interpret biopsies that were taken from the intestine of these children. Child psychiatrists who had familiarity with something I knew nothing about, and that was autism, a clinical neurologist who was able to exclude other neurological causes of these children's problems, and a variety of other people that came into the team, a total of 13 people in the end, to investigate this problem. And the findings were absolutely compelling. How long did you all study these subjects before you published the paper, and I know all 13 of these professionals were co-authors, including you. So you all co-authored this paper, correct? That's correct. So, gosh, they started getting referred after that call in Did May you start with child two? Did you no, start the first child, child one, came before child two only by virtue of a public holiday or some cancellation. I can't remember precisely what happened, but the first child to be seen was not the son of child, uh, mother, mother, mother number child two. two. Okay. She was the second. And so I think by mid-1997, we had put, brought together the data on the first 12 children. So this is two years later. After this is two years later. Home. And we were... We started. I started to write up the paper, and the the paper was a case series. Now, this is terribly important for people to understand. This you'll okay. hear in the media, and this is a tiny study, and there are no controls, and it's bad science. And no, this is not how the description of human medical syndromes occurs. The way in which human diseases are described is almost invariably, invariably in a handful. Patients, sometimes just one, where there are there is a pattern, a unique pattern of signs and symptoms of consistency between cases that alerts the physician to the possibility of something new. You don't so know. So you, st you start seeing a pattern. You start to. It's all about pattern recognition, okay. exactly. And when you see a pattern that repeats itself in, say, twelve children then you say, right, this is really interesting. It's time to write this up. It's time to put this out there into the medical literature so people can do hypothesis testing science. Meaning they would then try to replicate your findings. Replicate the findings. More data. And then say, let's bring in a comparison or control group to ask the question, is this a new bowel disease? Is this something we've seen before, like food allergy or mild Crohn's disease? What is going on here? So you put it out there to allow it to be reviewed in a public setting 
by physicians it's and scientists. It's almost like you're inviting in collaboration That's exactly what the you scientific do. community. Yeah. You, right? you, you you're say, saying, here's what we've yeah. found. What have you guys got? Or you're inviting Yeah, you can't commentary. draw conclusions. You can't say, no. you can, you can, this is not hypothesis testing science. Well, you say that in the conclusion yeah, of the exactly. paper. Do you not? Further studies need to be done. Yeah. That's was, all you said was, in the conclusion. That's all we said. We, exactly that. And so this is how human disease syndromes have been described forever, including autism. And how many children? Well, autism was described in what, 13? Mm-hmm. Crohn's was in 13, autism was in 11, Asperger's was in four. There are a handful of individuals who have this consistency in patterns of signs and symptoms that, that they need to be merit, they, have a, they, they merit publication in their own right. And okay. that, that's exactly what we did. So those criticisms fall by the wayside. They're utterly irrelevant and they completely misunderstand or indeed deliberately mischaracterize what the Lancet paper was about. And we've subsequently published many papers which were hypothesis testing papers which involved greater numbers in control groups of disease and, and healthy children in order to ask specific questions about the disorder. But that was the Lancet paper, a case series. So people need to be absolutely clear what a case series is. And it cannot, explicitly cannot, draw conclusions about causation. It could not say MMR vaccine is the cause of this disorder, even though that's the allegation that's been made. And indeed, the allegation that seems to have been made by Johns Hopkins in the blurb about Brian Deere's new book. We made the claim that MMR vaccine was the cause. No, we did not. It makes the idea of their charge relevant from the start because if it's a case series by definition it's not making any stated claims you so will you will see is that in is this my series, understanding exactly right. in, in this series you will see that time and time again from the very beginning of the new narrative of brian deer's telling of this story it has to be perverted it has to change it has to be his story not our story his story a parallel universe mm-hmm. of what he believes happened or what he believes had to have happened for our story to have been false from the very beginning. The, the legal aspects are one. It all started with a contract with lawyers is one. And the um, claims of the Lancet paper were another. I mean, it just, it goes on and on. So what was the, so so you guys go through this process, you identify some patterns, you conclude that further studies need to be done, your team of 13, your dream team, publish this paper, the Lancet publishes it, it's a peer-reviewed scientific journal, right? Mm-hmm. What happened? I guess, you, I, guess you, I should say what happened next. The due care and attention that went in <clears throat> to the publication itself, to actually constructing the paper, to defining the pathology. But, but what, 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 Can I pause on myself hmm, for one second here? Certainly. Did you all have any inclination when you published this paper that the storm was about to start? Or did you feel you had done your due diligence, the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed, you had been clear about this being case series... Did you think that things were buttoned up and there wasn't going to be a pushback? Or were you a bit naive at really underestimating what the machine was behind the Lancet? Well, let me put it this way. We, during the construction of the paper and, and, and during its writing and rewriting, 
We, I contacted with the Department of Health, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make it absolutely clear to them what we had found, what we were dealing with. What before, we, before you published? Long before, long before we published, to forewarn them, to meet with them, to discuss with them what the it was. And that letter from Walker Smith to David Salisbury is just one such example. Sure where we took it upon ourselves to responsibly report to the medical authorities what we what were finding yes. on the basis that they might prepare a response to that. That was responsible. Yes, and to help us answer some of the questions. We thought, and here was the naivety, we thought that they would be concerned to help and resolve this sure. question. You would think, right? We were wrong. We were wrong. What I did not realize at the time is that David Salisbury was involved in a disastrous situation largely of his own creation, and that is he had facilitated the introduction of MMR vaccine in the United Kingdom, giving market preference to GlaxoSmithKline, the home team, who only had at that time a relatively dangerous version of the mumps vaccine, one that caused meningitis at an unacceptably high level. He had chosen that product, he and others had chosen that product over and above Merck's vaccine, which, which is had an a different company. strain. Glaxo is a British company. That's right. He, that their vaccine was more expensive. Merck's vaccine was more expensive, but it did have a strain of the mumps vaccine, Geraldine, which was not associated with meningitis. It was safer. But he opted, he and his committee opted for the introduction of the cheaper, dirtier vaccine. colluded with the home team and it was already bought, but you didn't know that. And what happened was that inevitably there was an unacceptably high rate of meningitis, which was predictable, which he was warned about, which he knew would happen, which did happen. And the vaccine had to be withdrawn. The GlaxoSmithKline vaccine had to be withdrawn. Salisbury had to go cap in hand to Merck and ask them to make up vaccine stocks. And this was after the Lancet? No, this was at the same time. Oh, so wow. did this I, is, little did I know. This whole storm is oh. brewing. You ha- and you didn't know no. this was going on. Oh, Salisbury boy. had a lot on his plate wow. of his own making. But the last thing he needed to hear from me was that we were linking his precious vaccine to autism. Mm -hmm. So there was an antagonism from the very beginning, but that notwithstanding, we made every effort to take the responsible approach and alert our colleagues. Now, the second thing is that I wrote to my colleagues on the paper saying, look, this is highly controversial. It's going to be published and it's going to cause some alarm. The media will no doubt bring bring attention to this. Sure. In fact, the dean of the medical school, who was chairman of the media committee, wanted to hold a press briefing on the paper. And that was his choice. I wrote to my colleagues in advance of that saying, look, this is going to cause some concern and we need to prepare a statement on what our respective positions are. I said, I have as part of due diligence, written a 250-page report for myself on all of the pre-licensing studies of measles-containing vaccines, including MMR. And 
all of the post-licensing follow-up studies. And I am appalled by these studies. They are totally inadequate, and that has since been confirmed by others. And I can no longer support the use of the triple vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella. I will continue to vigorously support the use of the single vaccines because we didn't see autism reported in the single vaccine patients. Um, And I I say that with one caveat we'll talk about when we come to the patients. But um, I said you must take your your own position, which I respect. But having done this research, which I knew they hadn't done, Mm -hmm. this is my position. I cannot support the use of the MMR. And if asked, that is what I will say. So they all knew. Everybody knew. That went to the dean of the medical school. It went to my department head. It went to... Professor Walker Smith and his team, everybody knew what my position was going to be. It was no good denying afterwards they did not know or that they were not forewarned. It wasn't there wasn't due care and attention paid to this. But there was a press briefing at the behest of the dean of the medical school, Professor Ari Zuckerman. And he could have done three things. He could have stopped the press briefing altogether as head of that committee. He could have banned me from the press briefing knowing what I was going to say if asked the question. Mm-hmm. Or if I were present at the press briefing, he could have directed the question to someone else. Just ignored you. But he chose not to. <clears throat> On the day when the question was asked, what should parents do next? He directed the question straight to me. And I gave him the, my pre-prepared answer. And I did the honourable thing. Stayed, and that's when... Stayed you know, that, to the truth. That's when it hit the fan. I'm sure. But um, there we are. And Brian Deers described it as my press conference. It wasn't my press conference. It was a royal free press conference organized by the dean of the medical school. And he could have excluded me from that at any stage. I did due diligence. I did the research behind it. I came to a conclusion which I believe to be absolutely Correct in respect of MMR vaccine and subsequent events have borne out the truth. You, know, you just answered a question that I've had for a while on my mind, which is out of those 13 people, why did they pick you? I think in that press conference, you handed them. My career. The target. <laughs> because you made it clear that yeah. you were going to speak the truth and you weren't going to play by this script that they had written for Salisbury and whomever else they had recruited to participate in whatever version of the truth they wanted to propagate. You made it crystal clear, fearlessly, that you were going to stand by what you were seeing. And that is probably precisely when they chose you to be the fall guy. Yes, it may well be correct. And, you know, but the truth is you're also... You're standing by the truth and you're standing by what the parents have told you. The parents have come to you in desperation. They have sought help for their children and they've got very little. They've been told that autism is a dead-end disease, put them in a home, forget about it, move on. It's incurable, it's untreatable, you know, just get used to it. You have a professional and a moral obligation to honour that truth. And when it turns out that when you do investigate the children their truth is borne out, that they do have a bowel disease. There is an entirely legitimate connection with a vaccine, that the vaccine safety studies have been appalling, that 
your colleagues are backing away from supporting that narrative only because it might adversely affect their, their career. For their own selfishness. Oh, they can say to you privately, look, I'm sure you're right. I've got letters from them saying, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it can, the vaccine must be the cause. There's nothing else. But when it comes to the public statements, they back away from that. You can't do that with parents. Because the parents sit across the desk from you and look at you in the eye and say, "You." Well, you can. People do it, and you know that's what you call selling your soul. Really, um, I'm just going to speak for all the listeners. Again, how grateful we are to you for having integrity, for being fearless about standing in that integrity and honoring the truth that you saw then and that you continue to see today. Because I'm afraid to imagine a world where, back in May of 1995, you ignored that phone call and subsequently everything else that you saw in that investigation. Where we would be, how further behind we would be. We still have a lot of work to do in the health freedom space. We know that. We know there's a lot of propaganda unfolding in the measles space. You know, we know that that is being used as a pawn in manipulating the public to comply with vaccineology that is junk science. But we still have so much work to do to get there. And I shudder to think what the world would be like if you weren't a man of integrity and you hadn't stood in that truth. So thank you again. Thank you. To be continued. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a 7th Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.